Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This panel has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and presenters at Metatopia 2019. Episode 256, Turn, 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 presented by Jeffrey Engelstein. So thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to talk today about um, turn order and kind of general game structure. Thank you. Um, so I'm uh, Jeff Engelstein. For those of you that um, don't know my stuff, um, Um, I, I've designed a, a bunch of board games, uh, most recently The Expanse and, and Trade on the Tigris. Um, I also um, was on the Ludology podcast uh, for about seven years, and I'm still on the Dice Tower podcast uh, doing the game tech segment, talking about math and science around games. Um, and I've also um, published a few books, um, Game Tech and the Building Blocks of Game Design, which is this book here, which is... Uh, Topics that's covered in that is what I'm going to be kind of talking about here is in terms of turn order and structure. And I've got a book actually coming out in February from MIT Press called Achievement Relocked, which is about the psychology of loss aversion and its relation to game design. Um, and that also, that the first two are more board games. That one is a combination of video games and board games. Um, so, so I wanted to, as I said, talk about turn structure. And, um, you know, every game has some type of structure. Uh, games typically, you know, they, they, they are some type of structured activity. Even if it's a real-time, free-for-all type of game, there's something going on and that kind of defines the structure. Uh, so first I want to talk about, uh, and I was here in a panel earlier and we talked a lot about gaming, the experience of the player. And the turn structure, kind of the, the first thing you pick, has a lot to do with the experience that the player has. So I kind of want everyone to keep that in mind. Um, also, I am if nobody stops me, I will just continuously talk for 60 minutes. So feel free at any point to interrupt, you know, because I'm not going to, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of different turn structures. So if there's something about a specific structure that you want, a point you want to raise, please jump in and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll deal with it then rather than go back later. So first, some definitions. Um, I, I think it's important to try to define these. So I've been kind of uh, flogging this horse. So just in terms of, of for this conversation, and hopefully uh, you'll adopt it in your rule books, um, we define around turns and steps. And a round is based typically where all the players will go. Then a turn is within a round. And then within a player's turn, they will have multiple steps that they execute. Um, sometimes I've seen like that inside one player's turn there'll be like different rounds, and um, I, I try to avoid that terminology. Just so in general, round is the top level, and below that turns and steps. Some games also have what's called a stage, which could be an even higher level, um, like in Through the Ages, you can have age one, age two, age three, that are just kind of larger organizations. There's also another term which is used a lot, which is called the phase, and um, this one is sort of, a, of an odd duck. Um, I think that phase effectively can be plugged in at a couple of different levels in that hierarchy. A round can be made up of multiple phases. A step could be made up of multiple phases. But I think kind of the key thing that distinguishes a phase from, say, a turn or a round is that phases, different. they tend to be named and they tend to really have different activities in them. So some examples here like an upkeep phase or a feeding phase or a scoring phase 
and those have sort of different things that they do. Whereas if you go back to like a turn, turns, although sometimes you'll select to do different things, or maybe there may be two different types of turns, typically turns are all going to be the same, pretty much the same. Um, so the other kind of piece of terminology um, that I like to, to use is um, interleaved structures versus sequential structures. Um, and also, uh, thank, I will throw out some thanks to uh, Daniel Solis, who did all these wonderful illustrations um, for the book. Um, and so you'll see a lot of kind of the common features that he put in there. So what this is showing is, it is a sequential structure is where one person takes their turn and in it they do all of the activities for that turn. Whereas a sequential activity, there's typically, maybe there's, uh, there's a phase or something, and then each player kind of does it in a row within that step, or does multiple things in that step. Um, back in the 70s and the 80s, most games were sequential structures. If you think about like Risk, you know, somebody goes and they take their whole turn, they go, they move, they attack, they take their card. World war games were always I go, you go. You know, somebody would go and people would take a two hour long turn as they moved all their pieces and did everything. And the other person would go get lunch. And that's not an exaggeration. Those of you that haven't played those games, I used to go get lunch while my opponent was going. You'd come back and find out the new board state. But the more modern games want to get people more engaged and do different things. So a, an interleaved uh, turn structure in general is going to keep the players more engaged, uh, keep the functions, uh, you know, get everything shorter and, and uh, not bore the players as much. Um, just as an aside, I think a two-hour turn structure is actually not terrible if players are invested in that. Uh, as long as you can actually like leave and go back because uh, the worst is a game where you're sitting there while your opponent is moving for a half an hour where you have to maintain just a low level of attention. Either having complete engagement or no attention are the two best states. If you have to like every once in a while jump in and look at what your opponent is doing, that can be a problem. Okay, so with those kind of terms out of the way, let's dive into uh, looking at a couple of different, uh, all of the, the different term structures. Um, so the most basic one, and the one that we're all kind of uh, raised on, is a fixed turn order. Um, so in this, the turn order is defined at the start of the game, and it just will usually goes clockwise around the board for the entire game until the game ends. Uh, Monopoly is an example of this. Risk, I mean, chess, even, you know, two players. Most of the games um, that are traditional mass market games do that. Um, so the advantages of that are it's incredibly simple and players are super duper used to it. Um, it does not mean though that this has to be only for simple games. Um, I, oh, in the Expanse, for example, which is not a super complicated game, but there's a lot going on, it goes clockwise the same way. You pick a first player and it goes around. Um, but there's a couple of considerations that you have to look at when you're designing with this type of turnover structure. Uh, first, and a couple of these will have these, but you need to see if there's a first player advantage or disadvantage. And many games will look to compensate for initial turn order based around that. Give somebody extra resources or some other benefit um, to kind of deal with the fact that uh, they're not going first or, or that they get to go last if that's the advantage. But the other is um, whether or not you need to have an even number of rounds. Uh, how the game ends relative to the turn order. So some games, again, like those childhood games, you know, Sorry and Monopoly and all that, there is no, you, you can have an unequal number of turns. Somebody can have an extra turn at the end. You don't keep track of it. 
but there are many games where that's important, especially the fewer number of rounds that you're going to have, the fewer number of times you're going to go around the table, that can be an important effect. Um, it does, if you want to deal with that, it does force you into an extra component, because you're going to have to have a first player marker or something to indicate who started the game, in case players don't remember. Um, and it can also lead to sometimes some funky rules. So just two quick examples of that. Uh, first is, um, uh, if you have a system where something triggers the end game, and then you just play to the end of the round, that can be, it can be potentially a fairly serious disadvantage for the first couple of players in the round. Because let's say the third player is a four player game and your third player or your fourth player triggers the end of the game. Um, the first and second players that have already gone and taken their last turn didn't know that that was the last turn. But like if the third player triggers the game, they know it's gonna be the last turn. And then the fourth player definitely knows it's gonna be the end of the game. So you can get a situation where some players are, and depending on the game, that can be a serious problem. Um, Through the Ages deals with this by um, having a fairly complicated end of game procedure. And again, that's an example of a complex game where you just go in a circle the whole time. And Through the Ages, for those of you that haven't played it, the game end triggers when a deck is depleted. And um, it depends on when the deck depletes. So if the deck depletes in the middle of a round, if it depletes on the second, third, or fourth player's turn, you still play another full round. So basically, everybody gets at least one turn knowing that it's going to be their last turn. If it depletes right before the first player's turn, then that round is the last round. Um, so it can be difficult to explain to people, and some people can get confused about when it is the last round. Um, but just as a designer, something to keep into consideration that you need to have people know when the last round is in. Think about how it is. For lighter games and things, it may not make a difference, but it's just something to keep in mind. Next up is a stat order. So this is um, at the beginning of each round, um, the turn order is changed based on a statistic in the game. A classic example of this is Power Grid. In Power Grid, um, the turn order is gonna be changed based on the number of cities that a player has connected to. And uh, it, Power Grid uses it in a very strong way to disadvantage the player who has the most cities connected. So in this case, uh, for them, it's a, um, it's a, it acts as a catch-the-leader uh, catch mechanism. Um, and it's, it's, that's a very common way that it's used. Uh, so a lot of games will use victory points for this. So if, if you're lowest on the victory point track, you get to go first or you get some other uh, advantage to compensate for that. Um, stat order is, um, and all of these other more complicated systems where you're changing order, again, you're, it adds more components. You're going to need to have some kind of a track to keep track of it. It also just inherently ups the complexity level of the game because it's just another thing that the players have to worry about. They, they have to refer to a track to know when it's their next turn. If it just goes around clockwise and always goes that way, you know, I know I'm always going to go after Alice, and so I'm done and I'm good with that. Uh, whereas with these, players are constantly going back and referring to it, especially in something like Power Grid or Civilization where it actually may change based on different statistics or sometimes it's forward and sometimes it's backwards. It can add a lot of different overhead to the game. This one isn't as commonly used. It was actually bigger in the early 2000s, but it's kind of fallen out of favor. Um, and that is bid order. Um, so many games, 
Age of Steam being the archetypal example of this, will at the, as a very first action in the game, will have an auction for player position uh, for that round. Um, now the advantages of that is that it's, um, it gives the players, like any auction, it gives the players the tools to set up the valuation. And sometimes um, the valuation will change over the course of the game. So maybe early in the game, going first is not that important, but going later in the game, it's super important. And so as a designer, it can be sometimes be difficult to juggle that, and how do you award that, and you know, do you, are you giving somebody a huge boon by doing that? Um, but um, the downside of bidding for turn order is first off, auctions, just in general, tend to take time. It's just an extra step in time that you add in the game. Um, but the other thing, which I think is a, is a bigger issue, because there are types of auctions. I've got a whole chapter on auctions, 18 auction items. Uh, there are types of auctions like a sealed bid. You just put your bid in the fist and you open it, which is not too, doesn't take too much time. But it puts a lot of burden on the player right at the start of the game. Like if you play Age of Steam, the very first thing you have to do in Age of Steam is bid for how much you want to bid for your turn order and selection also of, uh, uh, you know, of, of where you're going to go in the turn. Um, that can be very intimidating for a player if they have no guideline. And very often players will underestimate or overestimate the value of going first. And so if I include that in the design, I think it's really, really important to make sure to, in the rules, to give the player some sort of an indication of what going first is worth on the first turn of the game. So you say something like, you know, players will bid, a typical bid for, you know, first turn of the game might be two silver, two coins, or, or whatever your currency is. Just leaving it totally open, you know, you give everybody 10 coins, and you say bid for player order, you know, everyone's gonna be like, okay, I bid eight, you know, and then that person is hosed for the rest of the game, or somebody bids, you know, gets it for two, and, and it turns out that it's a huge dominant advantage. So that's a real downside of this, um, but, it, you know, in a more, um, complex and intricate game where there's a lot going on and valuations are changing through the course of the game, it can really give a lot of strategy into the player's hands. So certainly worth considering. Certainly Age of Steam is, over the years has been a popular game, so it didn't impact that. Anybody have any thoughts on bid order? Anyone play games of bid order? People like it or don't like it? Yeah. We actually just played ATV 9 on Thursday for the first time. Okay. And, and you start, you've been on the minor the, companies? Yeah, the private companies. And you read it, it's insane, and then you get to the beginner rules, and they're like, "Don't do the bid, randomly deal out." So that's what we get. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great thing. And from a design technique, it's helpful. We can do it later, but first time, let's just do this, and don't worry about the valuation. We have no idea of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for being my plant in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Next up is. Um, what we called in the book progressive turn order, which as far as I know did not have a name. Uh, and this is very commonly used, and the idea is there's a first player token, and at the end of each round, the first player token passes one to uh, clockwise to the next player, and then that player becomes first player for the next round. Um, Puerto Rico, very famously, was uh, you know an early game that used this technique. Um, there's a couple of really nice features of progressive turn order. First, it's tends to be, you know, everyone gets a, a turn to be, a chance to be first. So there's, you know, it's just kind of generally evenly distributed. Um, you can still have that issues in terms of even number of rounds. Like if you've got four players, 
you know, if you got 13 rounds, you know, some people aren't always going to get to go first. Uh, if there's enough rounds, like in Puerto Rico, it doesn't really feel like it makes a difference, but it can. Um, the other positive thing about it is that it's generally clockwise. You don't have to refer to another chart or something to see, like in a bid order or something, where it's all mixed up every single time. You always know you're always going to go after a certain person. Um, the downsides with the system, though, is that um, with a, if you're in first, uh, if when you go first, and when you go, uh, then the next round you're going to go less. So if you look here, okay, get my mouse up here. But if you look at like the first, the difference between one and two, so if I go first in one round, I'm going to be going last in the next round. So if I'm, this is a five-player game. So if I'm in a five-player game, there's eight actions that happen in between when I get to go and I get to go again. If I'm in a six-player game, right, that's ten actions, ten turns that are going to get taken before I get to go. So that can be a really long time, and a lot can happen in between there. Now, Puerto Rico mediates this, of course, because you get to take actions in every single thing. It's got sort of an interlude structure. It's got what we call a follow structure. One person chooses an action, and everybody gets to do a minor version of that action. So everybody's engaged. So it doesn't feel like the same thing. But I have played games where it's actually physically your whole turn you take, and then you've got to wait a really long time until you get to go again. So something to keep in mind, especially when you get up to like six players, it can be really, really long. Now there's a reverse version of this, which is very infrequently used, but there are some who, who, who do it, and I forgot to write down the names of them. Um, but there are some where the first player token actually moves counterclockwise, and the play still goes clockwise. Um, the, uh, with that one, you actually get to go two turns in a row. Right, so when I go, uh, if, I, if I'm the first player, then, um, well, if I'm the last player in one round, I get to be the first player in the next round. So you get a double move. Now, some games don't like that because it gives a tremendous amount of power to players when they're in that position. It's like this huge power spike all of a sudden and then you gradually go down. Um, but there are games that do it. Um, but, you know, as a designer, that's the effect that you're looking for, if that's the experience that you want, of players to suddenly be able to do these huge combos. That can be a really simple way to just kind of give some extra power and a little power boost. Um, interestingly, progressive, you know, this idea where you kind of get, so you start as, you start in first place, you go last, like, so in the progressive, you actually start weak. Uh, you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, stronger. So you get closer and closer and closer first, um, and then you switch is uh, a, a very popular game that, that many non-gamers will play is uh, Texas Hold'em Poker. A Texas Hold'em is, I forget if it's either progressive or regressive, but it's the same idea. You play a hand, and then the first player token moves one clockwise, right? And in that case, uh, you want to be on the button. So the button is, yeah, the button's moving clockwise. Um, so that's a progressive turn structure that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but again, people, everybody's engaged. Uh, so in that case, when you're in the first position, uh, you gradually get, when you're in the strongest position, when you're in the, the button, you gradually get weaker, 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 and then just as you're at the weakest position, you jump to the strongest position. But I actually think it's actually useful for the casinos to do it that way, because, at least when I play poker, anyone here play Texas Hold'em? Right? You know, I usually do like one more round, right, and then I'm going to leave the table before I get into the blinds, right? But when you get in the blinds, it's like right before you're going to be on the button in the best position. So it usually maybe keeps you there an extra round and a little bit longer than if they did it the other way around. Um, okay, so that's progressive and regressive.
So next up is claim turn order. Um, so this uh, Agricola is, is a very good example of this. And the idea here is that, and it's used a lot of work and placement games or other things, but there's some action that you have to take to become the first player. But once you have a first player, it just proceeds clockwise from that, although there are variations, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, so you have to take some action to change the turn order. Uh, so as I said, Agricola does this, and one of the, there's a couple of downsides of this system. I'll, I'll talk about the positive first. The positive is that, again, it's got that clockwise idea. So it's very simple to know who goes next. Um, but on the, uh, it's also you know, very easy to tell what's going to be happening and who's going to be going on. On the negative side, uh, if you happen to get the first player token in the beginning of the game, you may keep it for a while and not have to do an action. Whereas the players who want to go first and want to move up in the turn structure, they have to take the action to do it. And as a designer, it can be really difficult to value that appropriately. Right? In Agricola, they let you do, when you take that first token, you also get to play a minor occupation. There's other stuff that you can do. But I find that if it's too powerful to, be, to, to take that action to do it, it just becomes an automatic action and everyone's going to do it first. Okay? If it's not um, powerful enough, then somebody can get a boon by taking it. Um, uh, and no, uh, someone's going to get a boon by just being first player and they'll just be in for the whole game. Um, so as an example of that kind of stereotype play, in an early, I honestly have not played the fourth edition of Twilight Imperium, but in the third edition of Twilight Imperium, so maybe this has changed, uh, they use sort of a Puerto Rico style of play where you, you on your turn, you took a, one of these available roles. And one of the roles just gave you a victory point, which was incredibly powerful because it was really hard to get victory points in Twilight Imperium. And then there was another role which gave you, let you go first, the next round. So whenever we played, and maybe our group was just bad, I don't know, but we got into this very stereotype pattern with the person who was in first took the role the next turn to take the, uh, take the free victory point, and the person who was second took the role to go first. Um, just because they set themselves up the next turn to do it. So you tend to that kind of stereotype play. Uh, which brings me to the other deficiency of the system, is that it can also give boons or negative impacts to players through no fault of their own, right? Um, if somebody is sitting here next to me and they take the go first action, I get to go second. And I didn't have to do anything, right? And the person that's sitting next to them on this side now gets to go last. And again, it was kind of out of their control and they didn't do anything. Um, so that can, be, uh, that can be a problem. One game that deals with that really well, which you, if, as a designer, if you haven't checked this out, it's very clever the way they do it, it's a game called First Class. So in First Class, which is a training game, um, when somebody takes the, f the action to go first, um, the other positions, the person who's in second place, so the person who's first gets, gets something, um, the person who's in, who gets to go second gets nothing, except now they get to go second. But the players who are now third or fourth or fifth get a benefit. They get bonus resources. So they get something out of turn from the person selecting the first thing. So it gives them a benefit. Yeah, okay, now I'm going last, but I got some kind of a balancing mechanism. And it's a very simple and clever way of handling it. So I think that that's good. Um, there are some games, um, Age of Empires, where you can actually take an action to go in each separate position um, and, and on, the, on the spot. But that kind of gets away from the metaphor of always going clockwise. So that can sometimes be an issue. Um, 
A related one is pass order. Uh, Kalos uses this. So the idea is here is this is a game where you take a series of actions and then at a certain point you can pass. Um, I think, uh, what's that game? Argent Academy? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? A worker placement game with your going to the, the Hogwarts thing. Okay, well there's a game that does this. But anyway, the idea is that you would have a series of actions and at some point, when you're done, instead if you're done and you don't want to take any more actions, you can pass. And the first person that passes gets to go first in the next round. And then the order in which players pass kind of marks their position for the next round. Um, this is also a very natural way to do it. It can mix up the orders. It's not an always clockwise system. But it does have the disadvantage, again, that the person who just happened to be first at the beginning of the game, if everyone takes equal numbers of actions all the time, then the person who goes first is going to remain first because they're going to pass. So it's going to rely on somebody kind of biting the bullet or people getting bonus actions or some other thing that's coming in uh, to, uh, to mix it up. So the going first has to be powerful enough to sacrifice doing an action. That Argent game, Argent the Consortium, that's it. Argent the Consortium uh, handles it by when you pass, you not only get to go first, but there's another whole set of special act tiles that you can take. So when your first person that passes gets to go first next time and gets another bonus to try to juice it up a little bit to, to skip something else that you need to do. Um, okay. Next up is one of my favorite, anyone who's played my game, so I, I love this second, is real-time. Um, so real-time games are defined by sort of somewhat a lack of structure. There's no, you know, people can just take actions as quickly as they want. There's no turns or anything like that. Um, how many people here like real-time games? Like real -time? And how many people here absolutely hate real-time games? I tend to find that there's a wide disparity. Nobody is neutral on real-time games. <laughs> people either, you're neutral? Okay. Yeah. So people tend to either love them or hate them. I, I love them, but I know people that just you know can't take them. Uh, but one thing I will say that I've learned from doing designs is that the upper limit for people is about 10 minutes of continuous activity. For real time, or the real time portion of a game extends beyond like 10 minutes, people just start to totally melt. There are exceptions, we'll talk a little bit about later, that, that do it, but tend to space things out. But if you're, if you're playing like a real speed game, you're gonna watch what people are doing and play cards or roll dice fast or something, if it gets past 10 minutes, people start getting squirrely. So definitely want to keep that. Um, the other thing, considerations if you are doing a real-time game, is you want to make it as simple as possible. The rules have to be super duper simple. Um, if the players have to stop the action because somebody has to ask a question or is confused about a card or what something does, it's not a good thing. The flow of it has to be really uh, continuous. Um, and the other thing is dealing with errors. Um, so like in Pit Crew, my real thing in Pit Crew where you're repairing your car, the errors are kind of built into the system. You're playing cards on the stacks, and then when everyone's done playing everything on the stacks, then you resolve the stacks and you deal them out. But there's ways to deal if somebody makes a mistake in the stack. There's a way to deal with it when you're not under the gun. So you need some kind of way of dealing with mistakes or errors. Uh, when I first started designing real-time games, when I first started designing real-time games, um, I, uh, I'm gonna have to talk faster. <laughs> uh, when I first decided doing real-time games, I did Space Cadets and Space Cadets Dice Duel. Um, we were really, and even Aries Project, we were really concerned about people cheating. 
Um, uh, with Dice Duel, it's a team versus team game of spaceship combat. And people roll dice and stuff like that, put them on different stations, and then launch torpedoes and things like that. And we made it. We spent a lot of time putting everything out in the open and making sure that people could kind of monitor each other and there was no obvious way you could cheat. Like, we have, once you put a die down, you can't touch that die again until the game stops. Um, so you can see if someone's fiddling with their dice, they're, they're doing something nefarious. Um, so then Captain Sonar came out. I don't know how many of you have played Captain Sonar. How many of you have played Captain Sonar? Okay. My old friend. <laughs> So Captain Sonar, you're, you're on team versus team, you're playing a crew of a submarine and you're behind this giant screen and you do all this stuff behind the screen. And um, every time something happens, you gotta like mark stuff off and things like that. And the thing about Captain Sonar is you can cheat like a son of a bitch. <laughs> there is nothing to stop you from just like all of a sudden, I have a mine, I have a torpedo, you know, this whole, you know, I mean, I guess it's eventually people get wise to it. But there's no mechanism for dealing with mistakes or for preventing cheating. And people didn't care. People loved the game. Everyone bought it, won all these awards, it was great. I kept reading all the reviews, waiting for somebody to say, oh, people can cheat. Because um, I was super concerned about it in my games, which I guess just says something about my moral character. But, um, <laughs> but nobody ever cared. So, I, you know, so in terms of real-time games, I mean, I think it's important to have them simple so people don't have to stop and learn the rules. But in terms of the of that other question of, of people intentionally cheating and stuff like that, people don't seem to care. So take that as you will. Um, a variation on uh, real-time games is what I call punctuated real-time, which is when it's real-time, but there's something that happens and it's usually a player-initiated action that freezes the real-time portion of the game. So for example, in Space Cadets Dice Duel, when you get into, when you want to launch a torpedo, you shout fire one or fire two depending on how many torpedoes you want to launch. And at that point, it's diced down, everyone has to stop, and then you can resolve the action and take your time and do some calculations and see if the torpedo hits and check for the shields and do all that stuff. That's not under the clock. Um, so the advantage of that is, first off, it lets you include more complicated mechanisms because things can get resolved and you don't have to worry about them being resolved in the real time. Like in Fuse, when you're doing the bonds, it's simple pattern matching. You match the, the icons and you're done. So it's very simple to resolve. We wanted to add a little more complexity and we didn't want it to do it under the clock. In fact, Stronghold came back to us like, make it real time the whole way through. And we tried to make it work and it just didn't. So we, we stuck with this. Yeah. What game was that? Uh, which one? The pattern matching? The one that. Oh, this is Space Cadets, Space Cadets Dice Duel, is, is the game. Oh, that yes. Um, and. Uh, the other thing that it did for us is it is it interrupted. Remember, I talked about that ten minute limit. It create it's it can be like a thirty minute game, but it created those breakpoints to give people a chance to catch their breath. So it was really important to have that in there. Um, I will take tell a brief story. So we had it. So you got to shout fire one or fire two uh, when you launch the torpedoes. Um, and when the game first came out, actually, we were um, I was at PAX. Uh, this was in like 2012, 2013. So, and we were playing in the hallway outside. I gave us, we sat down and we just grabbed the table and we were playing. And people were having a great time screaming and yelling. All of a sudden, security came over to me and they were like, Sir, people have to stop yelling fire. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. So just say launch, launch one, launch two. Was, we were fine with that. Um, okay. 
Next up is simultaneous action selection. Uh, so this is very often, can sometimes be referred to as program movement, although it doesn't have to be movement. The idea here is that at the same time, everybody plans what their moves are going to be, and then they're typically revealed and resolved simultaneously or sequentially. This is usually layered on top of another turn sequence, or there's some other sort of a tiebreaker to determine how they're resolved. Um, so, um, uh, Robo Rally is an example of something like that. Um, just in general, with program movement and stuff like that, designing these types of games, um, if it's going to go to like, you know, I, I usually try to keep it to like two or three actions. You know, Robo Rally goes to five, and that's when you really start getting people having spatial relations issues and understanding stuff like that. And if you want to do that, that's great, but you're really playing into that experience and that skill. Um, so you start having memory elements and people having to try to track what the action is going to be that's on the board. Okay, roll order is not, it was used a lot, again, in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's not used as much anymore. But in this game, people will secretly select or draft a roll. And then the roles are resolved in a very specific order. So for example, in Citadels, there's seven or eight roles, and they're numbered, one, two, three, four, five, so like, like Assassin is number one, King is number two, and so on. And so after everybody picks their role, then you call, who's the Assassin? The Assassin reveals who they are, and they get to go first. Um, actually, Citadels does something really clever with this and leverages this mechanism in that it, um, the Assassin, and the reason they go first is they get to potentially knock somebody out from taking a turn. So they, they name another role, and that role doesn't get to go. So they would say, like, king. And then when king comes, you skip king, and you just go over it. But you don't know who king is. You may know a little bit, because there's a drafting element, so you can kind of see some of the roles as they go around, so you may have some inkling to it. But it's a nice way, because it lets people interact and, like, you know, but it's not like I'm going to knock out Jerry. It's I'm knocking out the king, and it, hopefully Jerry is the king if I want him to not be able to take a turn at time. Next is our old friend Random. Um, there are some games, um, and a lot of war games do this, interestingly, uh, where it's just random turn order. In Pillars of the Earth, it's a worker placement game, but all of the workers get thrown into a bag, and they get pulled out one at a time, and when your worker gets pulled out, you get to put them on the board. Um, Pillars, uh, as a very, well, Pillars, uh, the issue with it is, you know, if somebody gets lucky, if all their workers are pulled first, that's gonna be a problem, and this can really throw off the balance. The way Pillars of the Earth deals with that, is that when you come out, you not only, you get to play first, but only if you pay a certain amount of gold. If you choose not to pay the gold cost, then you get moved to the end of the line. You get put on a board at the end of the line, and that first spot is knocked out. Then when the next worker comes up, they would, if they want to go, they have to pay gold, but it's a decreasing amount of gold as you get deeper and deeper into the lineup. So it can be really good to be pulled first, but if you don't have a lot of gold, you don't want to spend the gold, it can be bad. So it's nice because it works on that. This also gives the designer a lot of hooks to deal with different things. Uh, a lot of war games use this system uh, where they'll put chits into a cup because war gamers like to go low budget. Uh, they put chits into a cup and the chits will represent units and reach in and pull out a chit. And so a unit that can move faster, there's more chits in the cup. There's three chits in the cup for that unit instead of two chits. Or if they have a higher initiative or they have better leadership or something. So it gives you a lot of different ways that you can play with the, the um, uh, this idea of, uh, of initiative and speed and things like that, so the designer can mess around with those. 
Okay, next one is um, getting into some more rarely used ones now, but these I think can be really interesting. So action timer, typically done with sand timers. So you put sand timers on action spaces. This is sort of a variation of a real-time system. So you put a sand timer on a space, and when the time runs out, you either do the action, or a lot of games you do the action as soon as you put the sand timer on, but it's got to stay there until it runs out. Then you can move it on to something else and let it go. Um, so there's no turns at all. This is a real-time game, but these have, have people here played any of these sand timer games? Space Dealer, or, so how do you, I mean, does it feel frantic, or does it feel, yeah. It can feel frantic, but I also find that it tends to have more of a measured pace. Once you have your three sand timers out on the board, you're just kind of sitting there and watching the sand fall and kind of thinking about what you're going to be doing next. There can be some issues with um, priority. Like if two sand timers get come up at the same time, you know, for two different people, and you grab it and you try to put it on a space right in front of the other person, it can be a problem. This is what these games look like. This is Space Dealer. So there's a bunch of different spaces where you could put your sand timer. Um, you could put them on little spaceships, and as soon as you put them on, they fly to another planet. You could put them on factories to try to produce stuff and things like that. So you start with just a certain number of sand timers, and there's other things you can do to earn more sand timers. Uh, in this case, one thing to be careful about, and I found this out with Space Cadets, as the physics major in me was really interested in this, sand timers actually, A, are not very accurate, and B, can do one time one way and another time when you flip them over. I had sand timers that were like 30 seconds this way and 40 seconds this way. It is crazy. It just has to do the shape of the funnel on one side versus the other side. So something to keep in mind when you're designing. I bought a batch of sand timers, like I think I got about 20 of them. It was a good price and they yeah. all look exactly the same. And of the 20, only two accurately did a minute. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So something to keep in mind with these games, I mean, it can wreak havoc if somebody, one person's sand timers go in 25 seconds and somebody else's in 30 seconds. It can make a big difference. Um, but there are things like this game, every sand timer is 30 seconds. Uh, but there's a game called Wartime, uh, which came out from WizKids last year, which I did not get much action, but I, I really liked it. I thought it was very clever. Um, but in this one, it was you moved forces around the board. But when you moved a piece, you put a sand timer on it. But you got sand timers of different values. So you got 30 second sand timers, 60 second sand timers, 90 second sand timers. And so when you moved a piece, you could choose which sand timer you wanted to put next to it. So it added a lot more strategy and tactics in terms of how you moved it. And if something was just being defensive and you just want to get in position between the ones it was there, you could give it a long sand timer. But if something was trying to charge across the field, you could give it a short sand timer. So that was kind of an interesting technique that they used. Okay, next up is time track. Uh, Spoiler alert, this is one of my favorites. I think this is woefully underused. So in a time track game, there's usually uh, each person, each player has a token on a track, which is just going up in time. And the person who's in the last place on the track gets to go. It's their turn. And when you take your action, different actions usually have a certain number of spaces that you have to move up on the track. And if you go, then you look again, who's the last person on the track? Um, it could be the same person multiple times in a row. Um, so it, it adds for a lot of, it, it's, it's a way to mix up the turn order, it's a way to balance a lot of interesting actions, it's really super easy to explain to people who goes next, um, and so I just, I just kind of love it. Um, I used it in my game The Dragon and Flagon, so in this case um, we had, you see the tr time track going around, and where the little marker is, that's kind of the current marker, and as you take an action you can go up one, two, three, or four spaces depending on the action that you take. 
So it just gives you another tool to balance the action. Now, one of the questions is what happens if you move, if, if the current time space has multiple pieces on it? One very typical way of dealing with it is just when you move to a space, you go on top of the token that's already there, and then when you get to that space, who's ever on top most gets to go first. So first in, last out, last in, first out. Um, it's really easy, easy to teach. We tried it that way with Dragon and Flagon, um, but it didn't really work because it was too easy to set up these perfect plans where if you knew, because you knew if you were going last, you know, if you were going, you would know you could get kind of a double move and it became too powerful. So our system, we put those chits on and you actually randomize them and you pick. So it's kind of a combination of a turn track and a random turnover, so you can't put together those perfect plans. Um, Glenmore is another game that uses a time track. As far as I know, Thebes was the first game that had a time track. I couldn't get a good picture of it, but I didn't put it up there. But in Glenmore, uh, the person that's furthest back on the track, you know, you move up to an empty space and you have to take that tile. So you can move forward as far as you want if there's a juicy tile that you really want. But it may end up, you know, it may be a while before you get to go again. So I really like this because it puts a lot of the turn structure in the hands of the players, but it's incredibly easy for people to judge looking at the board of who's going to get to go next. Okay. This is probably my most obscure one that I'm going to talk about today. The past action token. Um, so this was actually first done in a game called Camelot by Tom Jolly, uh, who did Wiz War and a bunch of other really good games. If you don't know Tom Jolly games, you should. Uh, it was also recently done and used in a game about being a waitress in a diner, waiter in a diner, like a diner dashy kind of thing. Um, so the way it works is, uh, in this case, I've got a five-player game, and everybody just sits clockwise around a table, and there's two action tokens. So when if, Spike, if I have a token, I get to do my turn, and I can take as long as I want to do it. I mean, it's usually, you know, you have to follow the rules of the turn, but I can think or whatever I want to do. When I'm done with my turn, I pass my token to the next player, and they get to take their turn. So it just, the token just rotates around the table, and whoever got the token gets to take their turn. But usually there's, it really only works if there's two tokens or more tokens that are circulating around the table. And usually if you the second token ends, both tokens end up with the same player, either something bad happens to that player, like in Camelot they actually suffer a penalty, or in some games that do this, the second token that's coming around, instead of being passed to you if I already hold the token, it skips me and it goes to the person to my left, clockwise going around. So what that means is if I'm slow, if I'm taking a lot of time and everyone else is zipping through their turns, I may miss a turn in essence, but it's my own fault. I mean, I usually don't recommend, we'll talk about it in a second, I don't recommend miss a turn mechanics, but in this case, you could miss a turn, but the player, it's under the player's control. So you gotta kinda balance taking your time and thinking about what you wanna do, but if that token is starting to come to you fast, you may wanna just finish your turn really quickly and get it around. So this is a way of kinda combining the frantic idea of a real-time game while still giving people a chance on their turn to, to think and to, to do what they wanna do. Um, so this is Camelot, so this is what it looks like, so it's hard to see in this play, in what it, in play here, but um, it's, there's, there's two tokens that, that cycle in this game. Has anyone here ever played a past action token? Yeah. Or familiar with that? Okay. It's pretty cool. Uh, I, I, I think it's an idea that could be resurrected games. It's not used all that much. Yeah? I don't fully get it. So I understood the one turn, it ends, token is passed. 
Does that mean someone on the other side of the board is having a turn at the same time? Two people are taking their turn at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So you have to have your mechanics designed in such a way that players, or like in this case, you're actually in, in Camelot, you're, you're moving through the forest and you get to do things when you land on certain spaces. So you just move your person. Yeah, I didn't know if maybe this person's turn, then this person's happened, then this person's happened. No, 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 no. Yeah, so like if you're taking a long time to wait, three people can take their turns while you're taking a really complicated turn or thinking about what you want to do and manipulating things. I've played a game like that, but I can't recall it right now, and something very bad did happen if the one caught the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry if there's, in a party game, if there's what? It's like, uh, for example, like a sequence of movement, a side, two rows, they have to do something in the same time. Like, the, then the order will change after that. Yeah, well that's, I mean, that's more of a, um, like a team-based kind of a game. That's where there's like two teams and they're doing things simultaneously. That's a little bit different, I think, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so as I mentioned, um, just a couple of other kind of what I'm calling meta mechanics that go up on top of things. First is lose a turn. Um, and a lot of the games of our childhood did this. Uh, so uh, Monopoly, if you go to jail, you lose a turn. Sometimes it can be look bad, sometimes it can be good, depending on what's going on. Um, but in general, obviously now we try to avoid this and avoid having people not play. Um, a softer variation of this um, is in games like Sorry where you kind of you get sent back to start, so it's, it's a little bit of a reset. It's not really missing a turn, but it's like you unwind the progress of a certain number of turns. Um, but that you know, can certainly make players feel bad, and that's actually what my new book coming out is about, the psychology of loss aversion and losing stuff and how that impacts the player experience. Um, and then the other element to consider of how you're gonna do it is interrupts. Um, so interrupts are something that lets somebody jump the normal turn structure. And obviously Magic the Gathering is a big example of that. There's, there's a typical thing that people can jump in at any point. And kind of like in, in a real-time game, anytime you have something where it says like people can at any point play this card or stop this action or something like that, you're opening yourself up for player confusion or for contention if two people try to do something at the same time. Magic and a lot of games that do this sometimes work with an interrupt stack. So when you play an interrupt, the other person can do it on top, uh, and you, you basically build up a stack, and then you, you resolve the stack from the top bottom. Um, but interrupts can be really interesting in a way of keeping players involved in what's going on on other players' turns that they can jump in. But at least from my personal taste, you got to be careful with it because if you've got you know three or four players that all of a sudden can try to jump in and interrupt at the same time, it can get confusing. Or you've got to define like if I decide I'm going to buy this card. Right? Can somebody interrupt between like me announcing I'm buying a card and me actually executing the action of paying the coins and getting the card? You know, sometimes I, I've dealt with rules lawyers enough in my life to know that you've got to be very definite about when people are kind of allowed to play these types of interrupts. Um, I just had a great, so a great example of, of rules lawyering, just as an aside, is. Uh, Hey, this story was just yesterday. I don't know if you saw it. It was on the news that a prisoner. Uh, oh, oh yes. Prisoner, <laughs> prisoner, prisoner um, went into cardiac arrest and his heart stopped. And you know he was declared actually clinically dead. And they came in with the paddles and they restarted his heart. And then he sued and claimed that 
because he had died that his life sentence should end at that point and he should be free from prison and be sued to be released from prison. And the uh, judge was like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, so it's the rules lawyers. There's always, see, there's always someone that's trying to figure something out. Um, so that's basically what I've got. So uh, we've got a couple of, yeah, it's about 10 of so we've got a few minutes for questions or comments. Any, any other thoughts or other types of turn sequences that people have seen? Yeah. Uh, one I've played with, and maybe in other games, is the idea of the person who's in last chooses who the first player is. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, I actually put that in there, but yeah, uh, we, I just played a game called Triora, which is a new game from, yeah. from Brazil, where, yeah, based on a certain track, it's kind of a stat order, but based on a position on this Inquisition track, the players can choose where they want to be in the turn order, and each turn order position has certain bonuses. So if you choose to go first, you actually have to lose a couple of resources. If you choose to go last, you'll gain okay, a couple yeah, of resources. Okay, yeah, this is just a simple idea. The yeah. Basically, the but last yeah. person gets to decide, the person who's been right. last gets to decide where they Right, so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a variation of the, the stat order, except yeah, that the, the yeah. stat is giving you a choice instead of being deterministic. Yeah, yeah, because it's unclear whether first or last is better. Yeah. Or yep. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Um, well, I'm going to look at like first sort of the player experience that I'm looking for. Um, you know, so if you know sometimes if it's going to be real time or something, you know, then I'm going to stick with that. But personally, I mean, I always try to start my games with um, just one, always just going clockwise. I always try to start there, and if I can get that to work, then great, you know. But from there, if it's not really working, or as I design it, I realize okay, that's a real big advantage for the first player or something, or if I need some some way to mix it up then I'll start to explore some different ones and say, okay, well maybe this progressive would be better here because, especially in like a worker placement game, right? Like some games you just keep going around a circle and you kind of lose track of who goes first. It, it kind of flows. But if you've got a game where at the end of the round you're like clearing off the board, for example, in a worker placement game, and then re-exposing spaces, then you really want to think about there's a definite first player advantage. I've played games, I don't remember names yet, but I've played games where it's just always first person, one person always gets to go first every single round, and there's a huge advantage to going first, and I don't know, the designer just like fell asleep at the wheel, and I, you know, just, they just didn't, didn't address it, but I, I try to start there if I can make that work without jumping through hoops and still getting the experience that I want. Yes, sir. So, other than sand timers and social pressure, I'm just wondering if there are any mechanisms out there that you know of that can uh, uh, say mediate um, analysis paralysis in a player who takes a long time. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the past action token is really good for that. Because by the time, if the second token catches up to them, they're going to miss their turn, and everyone else still gets to go. So that would help. But yeah, I mean, there's no, you know, the, if you want to have a physical mechanism to stop people from doing that, other than past action token, I mean, the other one that I've really seen used most of the time is like in Galaxy Trucker or something, when somebody, Somebody finishes, they flip a sand timer. I mean, I just said sand timer, but as soon as you know, 
every as soon as a first person finishes an activity or something, they get to, to flip a timer. Yeah, or even in code names, code names got a sad timer, right? If if the other team somebody's taking too long to come up with a clue, it's okay. Screw it! I'm 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 putting up the sand time, and you got to come up with something fast. But it's really hard to do it. There's also the chess timer where you accumulated time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, this was sort of an in-game structure I talk about, but there was there's a game called Escape from Colditz, which is about escaping from a prison camp. And the main way to play that game, and this came out in the '80s, late '70s, early '80s. The main way that that game was played is you played. One person was the German guards, and the other, all the other players were prisoners that were trying to escape from the German POW camp. And there was, you would set a time, you'd say, like, we're going to play for two hours. And there was, a, based on the time you chose, there was a certain number of prisoners or whatever that had to escape for, for that person to win. And what's the problem with that? And then when two hours of physical time was up, the game ended. Well, you know, as the German guard, you're like, you know, <laughs> just like you know, it relied on just kind of a social contract that you're not gonna try to drag it out. But it was you know later versions of that game. It was actually re-released I think about ten years ago. It changed that. They made it like a certain actual number of rounds that you played to end the game, and not just that overall time. Just because of that, it was too easy to game the system. And, you know, move really fast or move really slowly to try to manipulate it. Yeah, I had a friend who's like we played that game for years and years. I finally got my own copy of it. I read the rules and I was like, "Dan, you're you're blocking both the exits. You can't do that." And he says, "Well, if I don't do that, the Germans can't win." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" It's like those Nazis always breaking the rules. <laughs> Any other? We have time for one more question. Otherwise, okay. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it. Oh, this is me on Twitter. You want to follow me on Twitter? Thanks.